And today we're going to arrive at one of the greatest and maybe most recognized prophets in all the Bible. We're in a series called The Unusual Suspects. It's about uh, the prophets in the Old Testament specifically and the message that they had for the people of God, not just in that day, but in our day as well. And Isaiah's ministry was a powerful one. It lasted somewhere between 40 to 50 years. He had some very interesting things happen to him. But today, I just want to focus on the call of Isaiah because I think it is a call that all of us need to hear and really apply to our lives. It's a pretty dramatic call, to be honest with you. And we're going to kind of walk through it one section at a time. And then I'm going to ask our body to respond to this call, not only as a community, but as individuals who love God. We're going to start with Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. And it's the story of the prophet Isaiah's call. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sins atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Now, a few moments ago, you saw a video kind of humorously joking about the short attention spans that we have in our society today. And let me say, I realize some of us uh, really have a real issue with that, not to make fun of that at all. But just to kind of say, you know, in our society as a whole, it seems like our attention spans are getting shorter and shorter. And experts now have identified at least one of the leading causes for it. Anybody here ever heard of an activity known as channel surfing? Anybody here ever do it? Anybody here ever lie? Okay. It's very interesting. How many of you have found that channel surfing has changed your life? Anybody? It's a very interesting thing. I meet very few people who said, last night I stayed up late channel surfing, and this morning I'm really glad I did. I feel like a new person. Psychologists who study this thing say that habitual channel surfing actually decreases our attention span. It gives us a smaller ability to give sustained attention. And it increases people's isolation passivity. And the question is, if it sucks so many hours of our lives away, and it gives so little back to us, the question is, why do we do it? And the answer is, because it doesn't cost anything. It is so easy. It is so effortless. There's very little effort involved. I've mentioned this because in a moment, we're going to worship together again. 
and we're going to try to worship kind of like the worship that we see in this text. And what I want you to know is that worship costs something. Real, authentic worship costs something. For example, I know that many of you paid a price to be here today. Some of you had a long week. Some of you had to squeeze a 4th of July uh, you know, day in this week, so you had a day off, so you were pl playing catch-up. Some of you are tired this morning. Some of you had to fight some traffic. Some of you had to juggle schedules. Some of you had to grapple with kids and maybe even a spouse just to get them here today. Some of you had to skip breakfast. Some of you didn't have a first cup of coffee, which is a very dangerous thing in this world. And then you had to hike all the way from the parking lot just to get in, check your kids in, etc. You see, I know the price that many people pay to come to a service week after week. Sometimes it's surprising to me that people pay the price and they say every week I'm going to come and I'm going to worship and I'm going to engage. But what I want you to see today is there's not just a cost to get your body here. In worship, I give God the gift of sustained attention on God alone. It is not about my life. It's not about my problems, although I have some. It is authentically about God. It is where I submit myself emotionally and mentally, physically and spiritually to Him. Worship costs something. And I know that you paid a price to come today, so I'm just going to lay it out for us this morning from Isaiah's text. I'm going to ask you today to give God the costliest worship that you have. And the reason I'm going to ask you is because He deserves it. Some of us in the room that are sitting here today do not need to be inspired by another song. Some of us in this room do not need to be challenged by another video, and you sure do not need to hear another sermon from a pastor. Some of us just need to give God our unimpeded, uninhibited, complete focus and attention. And when that happens, according to the text, according to Isaiah, some very interesting things will happen. Here's one of them. The first thing that will happen is what is called the wow factor. Isaiah experiences this wow factor in his life. He starts by saying, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now this is a very significant part of the text. Uzziah became king of Judah, get this, when he was 16 years old. 16. There's not a lot written about Uzziah. He kind of gets one chapter in Scripture. But what we know about him was he was a military genius. He had an army trained of over 300,000 men. Under Uzziah, the Philistines were finally defeated. The Ammonites brought him tribute. And other enemies of Israel were subdued. Uzziah was also a builder. He fortified the walls of Jerusalem so they were finally safe from their enemies. He was a technological innovator. It actually says that he had machines built designed by skillful men to fire arrows and to shoot large stones. He was an economic wizard. He actually would have his men dig a huge system of cisterns and he developed the economy. He was also a spiritual leader. We're told in Scripture that his fame spread as far as Egypt. Maybe with the exception of Solomon and David, he was remembered as maybe the most powerful king 
that they ever had. <laughs> Not just that. Do you know how long he reigned? Uzziah reigned for 52 years. Now think about this. Over the last 52 years, just in our country alone, we have had Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, older Bush, Clinton, younger Bush, Obama, and now Trump. But to people in that day, there was one leader. He was their anchor. And he dies. And now there's Assyria over here, this emerging superpower. They're gobbling up all the little nations around Judah. And people began to get real nervous. What do you do when Uzziah dies? What do you do when everything that you're counting on, your strength, your success, your relationships, when you've been banking all of that and it all crumbles and the king is dead, what do you do? Well, Isaiah says that it's precisely that you need at that moment to come into the real throne room and see who really wears the crown. Who really is over the affairs of human beings? It was in the year that King Uzziah died that Isaiah sees the splendor of holy God. Let's talk about this. It says that God is surrounded by angels, these magnificent beings. Two of them have two wings that cover their face. And the idea here is that God is so holy, he is so glorious, that no one can see his face and live. Now remember, these angels aren't fallen beings. But the glory of God is so great, so wonderful, that they can't look directly at him. One day, the Bible says, Jesus says that the pure in heart will see God, but not in that day, not in that moment. Two wings cover their face, and then two wings cover their feet. Remember in the Old Testament, way back when Moses was with God, he was told by God to take off your shoes, Moses, your own holy ground. And our feet kind of symbolize uh, earthiness or humility. And so there's two wings that cover their feet. And then they call out these words. Holy, holy, holy. Now this is very significant. R.C. Sproul talks about this. He says in English we have many ways to emphasize something. We try to get people's attention when we write. So we put something in capital letters. Or we italicize it. Or we use an exclamation point. But in Hebrew, they did not have that. Hebrew had no punctuation. The Hebrew Bible, as it was originally written, had no commas or periods. There are no lowercase letters. They don't even have spaces between their words. It's just a solid line of letters. So one way that the writers would emphasize something was repetition. They would repeat something. Now in English, we occasionally do this. I'm going to give you a very unsophisticated example. Very unsophisticated. Anybody here ever see a show called The Brady Bunch? Remember the show? When Jan wanted to get her sister's attention or mock her for doing something, what would she always say? Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Sometimes, sometimes you have to repeat something to emphasize it. For example, Jesus would often say, truly, Truly, I say unto you. In other words, listen because it really matters. On a handful of occasions in the Bible, something gets repeated three times. And this really elevates. Really elevates it to a place of importance. But only once in Scripture, 
Only once is an attribute of God elevated to that level. And it is not said of his mercy or his patience or his grace, but the angels say it here, not just once, not just twice, but three times they say, holy, holy, holy. What you need to know is that when you come to the holiness of God, friends, you come to the core of who God is. And if I ask most people in churches, I'm sure most people would say, at least a few of them would say, that when we talk about holiness, we're talking about moral purity. And that is a part of it, but that's not really the core of it. It's not at the root of the word. The Hebrew word kadosh meant something that was separate or separate or set apart or holy. I want you to think right now about the most majestic thing you have ever witnessed or experienced in your life. Think about it. Some people have visited the Grand Canyon. And they've talked about how breathtaking it is to see the Grand Canyon, especially for the first time. Others have witnessed the Aurora Borealis in the northern hemisphere, the northern lights. And they've talked about how it's left them speechless. Others have spoken about the overwhelming feelings they have when they see their children being born, especially their firstborn. I remember when my family and I visited Alaska a few years ago, we went on one of those boat rides uh, to try and watch for whales. And I just thought, wow, this is going to be a, an exercise in paying money for nothing. You know, we're going to go out there and never see a whale. And literally within about 10 minutes of making it out to a certain spot, a, a whale actually rolled out of the water literally within four feet of me. It is an awesome and terrifying feeling to realize that an animal that could literally turn that boat over is only a few feet away from you. Think about the most majestic, awe-inspiring thing you've ever seen. And then take that, friends, that mystery and wonder and awe and multiply it by infinity. And you have something of the effect that God's holiness has on a human being. That such a person, a being, an eternally self-sufficient person of burning, transcendent, brilliant, omnipotent perfection should exist, makes you understand why the angels cry, holy, holy, holy. And the whole earth could not contain all of his glory any more than a thimble could contain Niagara Falls. Are you with me? What does it mean to worship God in holiness? It's costly worship. It's not casual. It means we don't make a casual commitment to worship. We don't say if I have time or if it's convenient or if I like the style of the music or I like the worship leader today or if we can sit a little longer than we can stand. It, don't mean, it means we don't have that kind of attitude about worship. We don't kind of drift in and out. It means when we sing a song or we hear a scripture or we watch something on this screen, whatever that may be, or when we pray together with one another, we come before this being who is unbelievably, unspeakably, magnificently holy. And we express with our minds and our hearts and our voices and our bodies. And we see him the way Isaiah saw him. And we have that wow factor. 
Isaiah sees the living God, and his response is just powerful. You notice that his first response is not just excitement. It's not just that, wow, he signals me out for something special. He doesn't think about how impressive he can be to other people. The first response that he has is also a W letter, and it's the word woe. Isaiah experiences the woe factor. Now, this word woe in Scripture is a very interesting word. It's a prophetic word, and most of the time it pronounced condemnation on a nation that God had pronounced judgment on. He would say something like, woe to Edom, or the prophet would say, woe to Moab. This is the only time a prophet does this. He actually says it of himself. He says, woe is me. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. This is so interesting. He has seen the full extent of his darkness, of who he is. His thoughts, his motives, his desires, his petty cruelty. He's seen all of this. Now here's what we try to do. When we come before this holy God and we see this in ourselves, most of the time we try to just kind of minimize it. I'll give you a picture of this. When I was 16 years old, I uh, got the most important thing in the life of a 16-year-old, and that is a driver's license. And my grandmother had a car, and she let me drive her car one day. And when I returned home that evening, it was already dark, and when I pulled into the garage, I didn't quite judge the opening of the garage accurately. And I kind of caught the right front corner of the car on the side of the garage. Now, I knew I couldn't get away with it completely by just ignoring it, so I went inside and I told my mom and my grandma, I said, uh, I nicked the car on the garage. I think you might have to get it buffed out or I'll get it buffed out. Now, did I mention that it was dark? Okay. Because the next day, I went outside and the little nick had turned into like a Nickelodeon. <laughs> okay. I had taken out the entire front quarter panel of the car and the side of the garage when you go in. <laughs> and in the clear light of day, the body shop people had a whole different understanding of that extent of damage than I did. See, it wasn't a buff job deal. It wasn't a nick deal. It was like a quarter panel deal. And Isaiah says, woe is me, I am ruined. Now, this is just an observation about the state of the human soul. Now that he has seen God, now that he knows what holiness really looks like, he can see his own soul. In one of Dallas Willard's books, he has a chapter in it called Radical Evil in the Ruined Soul. It's a very clear assessment of what I'm talking about here. He says, like the face of the mythical Medusa, our true condition away from God would turn us to stone if we ever fully confronted it. It would drive us mad. We literally couldn't survive it. Emotionally, psychologically, we could not survive seeing it. But for a moment, Isaiah does. For a moment, he sees him. And it almost destroys him, except for the fact that God is such a good God. 
And the angel comes and takes a live coal, brings it to Isaiah, and he stands there and he allows it to be touched to his lips. Probably the most sensitive part of your body is your lips. See, part of the teaching here is that there's some pain, there's some sting involved with confession and cleansing and repentance. There's a little sting to it. People say, well, God's grace doesn't have any sting to it. I disagree. God's uh, grace is not there to spare us pain. God's grace is there to redeem our character. And sometimes it's good to enter into remorse and sorrow over wrong. It's important. Ask any judge or any parole board. They would tell you it matters greatly whether people show signs of remorse. Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. Isaiah understands that many times the darkness in us flows out of our mouth. He says, Whoa, I'm ruined. Now understand this, this is not about some neurotic false guilt. This is about the beginning of healing. This is the beginning of hope. There's a little pain involved, yes, and repentance that will happen. But all of it comes from the perspective of a holy God. There's always a passage in Scripture that used to bother me in James chapter 4. It used to say, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. And I'd read that and I'd think, whoa, that's challenging. He'd say, you double-minded, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. I can tell you, there's very few people that get up and read that as their verse of the day. (laughs) Grieve, mourn, wail. And again, it's not about wallowing in neurotic guilt. It is just entering into sorrow. Seeing yourself against the light of God's holiness. Many years ago, Christians used to speak about the gift of tears. And they'd ask God for that gift. They'd ask what happened to Isaiah would happen to them, that they could see sin in their soul and they would see it in the light of God's holiness and they would be purified. We're going to take a moment to do that right now, just just about 90 seconds. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. Now, we're not quite done yet with Isaiah's story, but I'm going to ask you to just take a moment and say, God, will you show me any attitude, any jealousy, any judgment, any anger, any impure motives, any bad relationships, anything that I'm saying with my mouth, any way that I'm being loveless with my heart. Will you ask God to help you see what it is and to feel what he feels? And in light of his holiness, feel that coal touch your lips. In the tenderness of this moment, will you come before the holy God and just say, just for a moment, will you say, woe is me? I give you a chance to do that right now.
Now, before we move on, it's very important for you to hear these words. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. What was promised by Isaiah was fulfilled by Jesus. And one of the most important parts of coming together as a community on a regular basis is to remind people, to assure people of God's forgiveness. That's what we're going to do right now. Just find at least one person around you, and I just want you to turn to them and say, don't ever forget that you're forgiven. Just will you tell them that? That's part of what it means to be a community. And as you do that, I want you to listen to the last part of Isaiah's story. God doesn't just cleanse Isaiah for his own sake. Because after Isaiah sees the wow factor and after he experiences the woe factor, he then comes to the why factor. Isaiah has a calling, just like all of us have a calling. Isaiah hears God saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Now, why doesn't God just demand something? You see, God's not perplexed here about what he should do. He's actually giving Isaiah the chance to offer himself freely, sacrificially. And Isaiah does. He says, here I am, send me. See, I really believe that authentic worship always ends with these words. Here I am, God, send me. Worship is never, never just about having an intense emotional experience. In fact, in some ways, worship isn't about an emotional experience at all. It happens, it's great, it can be wonderful. But it's not about focusing on myself or my heart or my body or my mind. It's allowing God to do and say whatever he wants and whatever he needs to say so that I can say to him back, here I am, God, send me. See, worship is costly in that part of the deal is that there is a direct correlation between our worship to God and the way we live our lives. And as we prepare to do this, I want you to listen to some of the most powerful words about worship I think ever written. And they're written, interestingly enough, by this prophet, Isaiah. He says these words in Isaiah 29. The Lord says, these people come to me with their mouths and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Therefore, once more, I will astound the people with wonder upon wonder. If you miss everything that I say this morning, please listen to this. Worship is meaningful to God only to the extent that it is a reflection of the desires and intentions of my heart. You see, here's what happens. We come together and we worship sometimes and we pray and we reflect on the goodness of God and we give God strategic focus. Maybe during a song or maybe during a scripture reading or maybe during some other part of the service. But the truth is we are called to a lifestyle. And what Isaiah tells us here, 
is, is, is entirely possible to tell God one thing, but to do entirely something different. I'm going to give you an example of this. We come together sometimes and we sing a song like this. We'll sing a song like, this is my prayer in the desert. When all that's within me feels dry. This is my prayer, my hunger and need. My God is a God who provides. And this is my prayer in the fire, in weakness or trial or pain. There is a faith proved of more worth than gold. So refine me, Lord, through the flame. And I will bring praise, I will bring praise. No weapon formed me against me shall remain. I will rejoice, I will declare, God is my victory and he is here. What a powerful song. But it is entirely possible to engage in that song without engaging our heart. And we never get to that point where we really do live like God is the one who provides for us. And we really don't live like he's the one who refines us in the trial of fires. And I really do believe, and I really get to that point where I feel like there's no weapon that is formed against me, God, that will prosper. We often sing other songs like the sun comes up. It's a new day dawning. It's time to sing your song again. Whatever may pass and whatever lies before me, let me be singing when the evening comes. You're rich in love and you're slow in anger. Your name is great and your heart is kind. For all your goodness, I will keep on singing 10,000 reasons for my heart to find. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O my soul, worship his holy name. Sing like never before. O my soul, I worship your holy name. Again, a powerful song. And in the moment, we're kind of caught up in it and there's emotion. But it's entirely possible, and I'm going to tell you how I know because I've done it. (laughs) Is that we sing those words, and the very next day when we get up, we don't sing a song. We find 10,000 reasons to grumble and complain. And we forget that God is rich in love and slow to anger. Am I making sense? That's exactly what Isaiah is talking about here. But instead of that, Isaiah says, I'm going to be fully present and fully engaged and fully responsive. And I'm going to be able to say, here I am, God. Send me. All of me. 